You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to the Common Descent Podcast, episode 111. What a satisfying number. Right? 111. Well, for 111, we are discussing the topic of eusociality. Ooh, I think there perhaps there is some sort of joke to be made about a series of singular units <laughs> operating as a whole. I do like that. Or 111, like, like we planned it, of course. Yes, absolutely. Hang on, edit this again, and, and we'll, we'll do it again, and we'll make it sound like we planned it. <laughs> What's eusociality? Eusociality, or true sociality, as it's sometimes called, is the highest level of social interaction in animals is how you'll often hear it described. This is the phenomena of a group of organisms working together as a massive whole where you have ants, bees, termites, those classic examples that are working in mass to benefit the group, not just the individuals and often sacrificing the survival or benefits of the individual's over the group. Right. The classic animals that live in hives and, hives and colonies. colonies. Yep. Uh, yes, you are a one large communal entity. Yes. Uh, pr- pr- proliferating through the generations. Yes. Yeah, it's, this is a strange topic in the fact that it's an odd phenomenon. Like, yeah. it's weird. It's rare. alien. It's rare. But it's not so rare that it isn't widespread across multiple different groups of animals. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll get to list a whole bunch. So we will go through what is eusociality? How does it compare to other versions of being social? What does it mean to be eusocial versus other types of social interaction? What does it take? You know, how do we identify a eusocial group? What animals have we identified as eusocial? And then talk a little bit about how does one become part of the collective? How do you go from being an individual to being part of the hive and what evolutionary pressures would cause a species to self-sacrifice the way so many of these animals do? Yeah, I am excited to learn. It's super weird. There's lots of maybes and ifs in our understanding of it because it's <laughs> it can be quite complex because lots of groups have come to it individually. And of course, the reason we're discussing this is because it was requested. By whom? This episode was requested by Jonathan, Anthony, Junker, Cindy, David, Fisher, Milu, Alejo, and Harrison. Wow. It's a popular topic. Yeah, we got a lot of people. With good taste. Yeah, we a lot of people (laughs) with good taste. We have the best listeners. And before we get into the episode, let's get some announcements out of the way. Sure. To start with, we have a Patreon. We do, up on the internet. It's up there. You can support us there, and the people who do support us there are helping fund the entire podcast, and if you do that at a certain level, we like to shout your name out when you join in, like this. So welcome aboard, Nano Tyrannus, Bruce, Kylie, and Dan. Welcome, everybody. And thank you so much for your support. Thanks for your money and your support and your listening and then for making the podcast what it is now and into the future. Absolutely. And if you join us on Patreon, you get extra little goodies, bonus audios and bonus content and extra access to uh, extra access to us 
So check it out if you're interested. And speaking of bonus audio, yes, we recently did a thing. We did. So not too long ago, Godzilla vs. Kong came out. That was a movie. And we watched it because we wanted to. Yeah. We were going to regardless. <laughs> but also because we discussed the previous Godzilla and Kong movies in this recent legendary MonsterVerse franchise. Yeah, in our previous silver screen science discussions. So we have now done one for Godzilla vs. Kong as well that you can check out in the usual places. So listen to our silver screen science about this new movie and if you are a patron, we always like to release our More Thoughts episodes, which is us talking not about the science of the movie, but just what we thought about the movie. And this episode of More Thoughts is a little bit special because it's not just us talking about Godzilla vs. Kong from this the year 2021, but also our viewing of King Kong vs. Godzilla from 1962. Yeah, what a duo of films. What a, what a double feature that was. <laughs> <laughs> so check those all out. And with that, we can wrap up the announcements and enter into the news section. What's the news section all about? Every episode, we like to gather up a couple of pieces each of recent scientific news dealing with evolution, biology, paleontology, geology, earth history, things that we tend to talk about here on the podcast, and share them all with you to keep us all up to date. David, would you like to start us off? I sure would. Hey, what do you think I should start with, venom or rainforests? Ooh, venom. Okay. Uh, this is research about the origins of venom. Neat. Which is pretty cool. This is a paper by Agnish Barua and Alexander Mikheyev in the journal PNAS, and we will link to an article in Live Science by Stephanie Pappas. Venom, we talked about venom way back in episode 97... Uh, the ichthyosaurs episode. <laughs> Venom is a very widespread and diverse phenomenon, right? Tons of animals have developed this system of having toxic, uh, often saliva or similar to saliva, that they can inject into prey or potential predators, and it you know causes the body system to go haywire. The toxins that are involved in venom are very diverse. They crop up in lots of disparate groups. But understanding the origins of toxins can be difficult because toxins themselves, right, the, the, the actual molecules, evolve very quickly. They tend to have complex uh, activity and complex expression in terms of genetics. Mm -hmm. So it can be really hard to trace them back to where exactly did they come from and when and how and why. Yeah, they can get uh, unrecognizable from their source pretty quickly. This study opted, instead of looking at the genetics of toxins, to look at the genes that hang out next to the genes for toxins. Oh. So, basically the regulatory genes, the genes that aren't being expressed in anything, they're not coding for any proteins or things, but they are there to essentially modify and control the functioning of other genes. They started by looking at uh, the Taiwan habu, which is a type of pit viper over in Asia, of which they were able to look at the whole genome and look at these sort of toxin-adjacent genes. And they identified a collection of about 3,000 genes, which they called the Metavenom Network. Ooh, I'm I'm ready for that comic book series to come out. <laughs> the Meta Venom. It's like Venom, but he carries that big gun yes, that yes. shoots grenades. <laughs> These are genes that are involved in the regulation of uh, the toxin genes. 
Most of them are involved in folding and modifying of proteins, which the authors say makes sense since most toxins are proteinaceous. They're Mm -hmm. made of proteins. But what was interesting about this network of genes is that a very similar network of genes is found in lots of tissues in lots of amniotes, that is your mammals and reptiles, including humans. Our salivary genes, our salivary glands, also express these genes. The the, the genes involved in our saliva also are adjacent to this very similar network, this metavenom network of regulatory genes. Huh. It seems that this collective of genes is shared across amniotes, which suggests that it goes back to the last common ancestor, that this is a feature that has been around since the earliest reptiles and mammals. It's also the foundation of venom in multiple groups of venomous mammals and reptiles. Oh. That venom seems to have been built on this same foundation in venomous lizards, in venomous snakes, in shrews that are venomous, in selenodons. And those are just the ones they mentioned. Uh, There may be more as well. They pointed out that venom as a system seems to have arisen in these different groups built on the same foundation, a foundation that also exists in us. Yeah, so not so much that it going back to the common ancestor mean we all started out venomous, but that we had the building blocks ancestrally to easily develop venom. Yeah, this is the place they have built. This is like the plot of land we all share that just happens to be perfect for this building. Yeah. And the building is venom. Very interesting. Now, that also is what the article that we'll link in the, the blog post, the Live Science article, the title is something like, you know, could humans evolve venom? The science says we could kind of thing, mm-hmm. which is a little bit misleading. I do remember when I saw that and I had the thought of that sounds like it's interesting, but not for what you're actually saying. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I've, I've chosen that article to link in the blog post because it, it goes into a lot of great detail. Mm-hmm. But the running theme throughout it is this sort of the, the catching mechanism is we have the scaffolding for venom, right? We could evolve venom where maybe more accurately what they're saying is that reptiles and mammals that evolve venom evolve it using this shared genetic structure yeah. that we all have, which does mean that we have that same foundation. Mm-hmm. So yeah, theoretically, given the right evolutionary pressures, it should at least be no more difficult for us to evolve venom than, you know, shrews and selenodons and whatnot. Perhaps in theory. Yeah. Well, and, and the issue with stating it that way is that it, it insinuates either that it's like an unlockable, you know, like a like a, a feat or, a, you know, unlockable skill or right. something. When, when we evolve to level 79, mm-hmm. we unlock Venom. But the, the main issue I have with phrasing it that way is we also have the framework for Batwings. Uh, right. Because <laughs> I've got all the right bones if I if I just stretched them out and stretched the skin. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. Like, yeah, that that mentality of we have the same framework for a lot of things a lot of animals have, but that doesn't mean we could right. just as easily or likely evolve that thing. But still very cool that we have it. Very cool to identify this shared origin. And they do go into a little bit of detail talking about how that foundation has been adjusted mm-hmm. to, cre- to to into venom systems. 
and they point out that one thing that seems to be very common is that specific proteins associated with this network are expanded. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the proteins in our saliva are also very common in modified forms in, you know, Gila monster venom and mm-hmm. shrew mm-hmm. venom. And that the other mechanism is incorporating genes from elsewhere in the body, which we've talked about before, that genes that are normally expressed in other tissues ending up associated with this regulatory network and then built into the growing venom system, which it sounds like, if I understood what they were saying correctly, is rare, but relatively common in snakes. Yeah. That that's one of the things that has made snake venom unusual, is that there seems to be more of that process going that on. That repurposing of genes. So not only do we have a good, a better sense now of what the genetic foundation for venom systems is, at least in reptiles and mammals, but also a bit of a sense of how that foundation transforms into a venom system. I like this because I feel like it's a, a really good example and, and way to understand what we mean when we talk about evolutionary trends. Mm-hmm. It's like th- this is a thing in the genetics of amniotes that makes it, if not prone, much more likely or easy for venom to evolve if the right pressures and mutations happen to come along mm-hmm. that there's uh, there's some pre-laid foundation to allow that to happen a bit more easily than say you know, a frog necessarily or something right. that might not have the same genetic framework and i was gonna say this kind of makes me wonder and this is a little bit baseless i don't mm-hmm. have a lot of data but in our venom and poison episode 97 we talked about how venom doesn't seem to be particularly a thing for amphibians yeah nearly the way it is for reptiles and mammals and maybe this is part of that. Yeah, maybe they're lacking the the correct starting position yeah. to easily achieve it. Of course, fish are venomous and insects are venomous. Oh, yeah. And like, so, yeah, it's not like it's only us. Yeah. But very cool to know where it's coming from in us. Neat. Well, speaking of evolutionary trends, my first bit of news is about a mathematical description of evolutionary development of pointy things on animals and plants. Huh. This is this one's getting into mathematics a bit, and so it's sounds like geometry, right? Yeah, it's describing what they call power cones, which are pointed structures, and that there is a logarithmic relationship to the growth of those structures that seems to be ridiculously consistent among much of life. Huh? Yeah. So well, so far we've got a venom meta venom network and power cones. Yes. So we're we're building an off-brand Avengers. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll read these comics. <laughs> this research is by Alistair Evans et al. in BMC Biology, and the article is by Peter Dockrell in Science Alert. So this is something that is referred to as a rule of growth, a feature on how c- commonly certain shapes grow across nature. One of the common ones is spiral shapes Mm -hmm. in snail shells and ram horns and other spiraled naturally growing things is an example of one of these logarithmic growth rules that those grow in logarithmic spirals. When we say logarithmic, that is referring to the relationship between the measures of these sorts of shapes that are being described. Now, I am not a mathematician. I can't give you a detailed description of exactly what the equation is. But 
there have been examples of discovering consistent growth patterns throughout nature. This one looks at pointy things. Teeth, horns, claws, beaks, and even thorns have all been shown among many different groups and examples to share a similar logarithmic relationship in the growth of those structures, in the development of those structures. This logarithmic relationship focuses on how these pointy, these power cones, as they're described here, get wider as they get longer. Now, this is not to say they're all shaped the same, but that there is a consistent logarithmic relationship between the width and length of these kinds of structures. Okay. And that it's not just among teeth, which is where they started, but also other pointy things, even in plants. Plants and animals seem to follow this growth pattern. They identified this by looking at hundreds of teeth and measuring the width and length, which allowed them to identify this mathematical formula and then found that it applies to tons of other similarly shaped things. They've named this formula the power cascade. Ooh. Right? (laughs) Oh man, add that to the comic. Yes. And it is a previously unknown law of nature mathematical law of how things tend to grow huh right (laughs) it's this is where we are quantifying physical development of living things very cool now how is this useful why is this important to recognize and be able to identify well it can let us look for certain patterns when studying these sorts of shapes for instance it can be used to simulate these kinds of shapes based off of the measurements to create the power cone based off the measurement of length and width. It can also be used potentially to gauge the age of animals based on the rate of development of the power cones. Oh, so this is a formula that's describing not just how they're shaped, but how they come to be that shape. Yes, that... How they grow and develop. That that logarithmic relationship is consistent as it develops. Right, so that we have a... It it makes me think of, you know, we have a gravitational Mm -hmm. formula that we can apply to the movement of all the different planets and moons, that this is a math equation that holds true for this shape across different types of life, but also across the development Mm -hmm. of those shapes. And so that you might be able, you could identify at what stage of development is it in And how long should it have taken to be able to get there? Cool. And even in the video that's in the article uh, that's embedded, they say that this will also apply to fictional creatures. That now if you want to create a dragon, you could use this formula to form their teeth correctly or their horns or claws. So they knew who they were talking to. Right? (laughs) And because of the range of organisms that this seems to apply to, it does seem to be a reliable and fundamental pattern of growth in organisms, or at least a ton of organisms. This is a cool, you know, in the last news bit, we were talking about the genetic sort of limitation, right? Mm -hmm. The the idea that there is a genetic foundation that kind of governs how this structure, right? In this case, venom is developed. Uh, In the past, we've talked about physical rules that govern you know, the size of organisms. We've talked about how big you can get and how as you grow, there are relationships between size and weight, volume and and surface area, that there are physics constraints 
that govern how uh, biological things can happen. This is getting at the mathematical constraints. Yeah. That there are rules of mathematical relationships, measurement relationships that govern either how something can happen or how something best happens. Exactly. That, like, if you want a functional pointy bit, you typically are going to be using this formula if you want it to work, if you want it to be a good pointy bit, a, a, a beneficial power cone. I'm trying to think of how this could apply to paleontology, and there are a few things. So you mentioned that you could determine, you know, how far developed mm-hmm. a structure is. It also occurs to me, I wonder if this could be useful for distinguishing biological versus non-biological structures in the fossil record. Oh, yeah, potentially. That if you find a pointy thing. I don't know if minerals also grow. Yeah, they didn't mention in, it. In the same rule. But if this is really a biology constraint, maybe this could help us d- distinguish fossils from pseudo-fossils or something like that. It might also be able to fill in blanks that if you if you have half a horn, mm-hmm. you could simulate what the rest of it should look like mathematically, you know, and therefore get a better idea of an incomplete fossil. Yeah. Ooh. Hey, that's cool. Boy, math is fun. Right? It's, it, it, yes, it sounds a little bit like black magic, but boy, is it awesome. Also, mathematicians give uh, cool names to their concepts, like power cascade. Good job. Well, my next bit of news, speaking about how things get to be the way that they are, is about the origins of modern rainforests. Ooh. Specifically, the relationship between rainforests and the end Cretaceous mass extinction. I'm ready. Yeah, now I got you excited. This is research by Monica Carvalho et al. in the journal Science, and we will link to an article in Science News by Carolyn Gramling. Back at the end of the Cretaceous period, 66 million years ago, there it was bad. Mm-hmm. Things got real bad. There was a mass extinction, uh, asteroid impact with the planet, caused all sorts of havoc, ecosystems were thrown out of whack, everything uh, got all weird. Climactic shenanigans abound. Lots of extinction. We did this in episode five. However, as we discussed in that episode, there's lots we still don't know about the after effects of this event. And apparently, I learned from this article, one of the things we don't know a lot about is the effects of this extinction on tropical forests at least the long-lasting effects. So in this study, researchers set out to try to find out. So they sampled tropical forest uh, fossils, plant fossils specifically, in Colombia, in northern South America, ranging from the late Cretaceous into the early Paleocene, spanning the before the extinction and a ways after the extinction. They examined a grand total of over 6,000 leaf specimens and over 50,000 occurrences of fossil pollen from 39 sites across Colombia, ranging from about 70 to about 54 million years old. Boy, those are some impressive numbers. So uh, this is a study. (laughs) A bit more than just a glance. Yeah, that is what we in the biz call statistically significant. (laughs) (laughs) And here's what they found comparing rainforests before and after. In the late Cretaceous, rainforests, generally speaking, were a diverse mixture of plants. There were angiosperms, flowering plants, the kind of plants that are dominant today. We talked about those back in episode 57 with Allie. But also plenty of gymnosperms, which includes things like conifers and cycads, 
ferns, you know, b- plants that were more common in the olden olden times. Yes. That these forests had uh, this diversity of plants and were generally open canopy forests. That right. they would have been more of an open, you know, more, lots of gaps in the, the tree cover. Yeah, not, not dense to where you can't see the sky. Exactly. Then, during the K- the KPG, the end Cretaceous mass extinction, there were big losses, especially in gymnosperms. There was a lot of extinction. And overall, about a 45% decline in plants in general. Recovery back to, you know, previous levels of diversity took about six million years. Okay. So this was a long recovery. And over the course of that recovery, a new form of forest developed. Hmm. Such that by after the recovery, they observed that angiosperms now make up about 90% of the diversity in these forests. And the leaves they're finding indicate closed canopy and multi-layered forests. Wow. So that the canopy isn't just closed so you can't see the sky, but that there are multiple layers in the canopy like we see in tropical rainforests today. Yeah, as I say, we we went from, you know, not wholly unrecognizable, but semi-alien, you know, semi-weird, yeah, bizarre forests to really i mean everything you described has sounded like every time i've ever heard the rainforest described yeah as they say that the same structure as today's lowland neotropical forests that's a wow that's a quick shift to recognizable yeah and they talk about why that might have happened Hmm. like what exactly was it that seems to have favored this new forest style they point out that uh back then and today you know the climate is hot and humid and that's basically what they need. It's yep. rather similar. Uh, and this was only mentioned briefly in the article, and I didn't get access to the full paper, so I didn't find any more detail about this. But it sounds like they're pointing this out, I assume, because climate seems like an obvious answer. But that now it was what they needed. Yeah. Instead, they suggest that what might have happened is that the loss of all those big herbivores, oh. right? Big dinosaur plant eaters may have helped allow the forest to become more dense big plant eaters are really good at clearing gaps in the forest yeah right elephants do that today so maybe the loss of those herbivores could have allowed the forest to grow more densely they also point out that certain groups of plants went extinct and that that could also have left uh effects on the structure the forest was able to achieve yeah because plants compete with one another and if your competitor suddenly went away you might be able to grow more densely right interesting they also make the point that there it may have had to do with the soil Hmm. gymnosperms conifers cycads etc apparently do quite well in poor soils and in areas with lots of rainfall you get lots of leaching of nutrients out of the soil and so you end up with these sort of poor soils that gymnosperms do quite well in Well, after the KPG mass extinction, when tons of ash and such was falling out of the sky, they suggest that could have contributed phosphorus and other nutrients to the soils, basically fertilizer, that favored faster-growing angiosperms. That might be why angiosperms were able to take over more quickly, because the soils had been 
fertilized for them to take advantage of and then give rise to the modern angiosperm-dominated rainforests. So the angiosperms were juicing. Yes, they they had injected additional nutrients into the soil, and the angiosperms uh, cheated. Yep, yes, that's that's exactly what I was getting at. All right. Yep, yep. Now it's all clear. That's right. Um, Another uh, quick point, they also pointed out that they noticed a difference in insects. Hmm. Not from the insect fossils, but from the feeding traces on the leaves. Oh. They found that when the extinction happened, uh, the insect feeding traces that disappeared most notably were specialized feeding styles like leaf mining, piercing, and sucking traces. Hmm. Such that insects struggled as well. Which, and they don't say this in the, the article, but it wouldn't surprise me if the loss of certain types of insects could also affect the, the structure of the forest. Yeah, if, if you're... If your parasites suddenly shift dramatically. Right, right. Or or your pollinators. Yep, yes. Yeah. That's so cool. I feel like whenever we discuss mass extinctions, you know, we always talk about how it was before and how it was after. What were the side effects, the aftermath of a mass extinction? And I feel like when it goes from something kind of, you know, really distinct from what we know today to something kind of really recognizable to me that really drives home how drastic and devastating mass extinctions like this would not i don't want to say a 180 but i mean it it completely changed the way we view the forest before and after Mm -hmm. and that's yeah that's a big shift yeah well it, it means that at the same time that modern mammals were moving in to sort of take over where the land ecosystems had once been dominated by large dinosaurs, the angiosperms were moving into these rainforests, not only to change the diversity of the rainforest, but the structure, yes. the, 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 the formation, the composition of the forest itself, which is a very cool shift to see. You know, people talk about how, oh, the mass extinction paved the way for the world as we know it. And yeah. Yes. In in many ways, absolutely it did. Yep, sculpted it. Fascinating. Well, speaking of the evolution of things we now take for granted, mm-hmm. uh, bones. I have a few of those. I have some too. Uh, I don't want to brag. <laughs> Got about 200 myself. This is research on early bony armor and, in, and how it became potentially critical for our early vertebrate ancestors. And led to us bony creatures nowadays. Huh. This is research by Yara Herity et al. in Science Advances. The article is by Riley Black in Nat Geo. So this study was looking at remains of ancient fish, 400 million year old ancient fish, to look at the bony external structures. So not the internal, but the bony pieces on their armored exoskeleton, their armored shell, Mm -hmm. because these were some of the early jawless fishes which had bony armored coverings, likely for protection from predators that want to crunch through those bony armored coverings. Yeah, the bony armor fish are the ones that the metavenom network of power cones (laughs) have to go stop. (laughs) (laughs) I demand a fan comic. Let us know when you finished it. We're giving you all the groundwork. (laughs) These fish were known as the osteostracans, 
Which is really the name that the bad guy should That's, have. Yeah, no, that yeah. Osteostrakken is that. like the main guy. Mm, Strakken. <laughs> I'll get you next time, Power Cone. Yara said that they like to f- affectionately call them beetle mermaids. That's even better. Right? Listen, guys, we've got all the all the ingredients are right here. <laughs> they had a hard armored encased front with a flexible tail coming out the back, no jaws, and the they had bone tissue encasing their body. And in this bony structures of these fish are osteocytes, cells that have become encased by the mineral structure of the bone. Right. We have those in our bone as well. Those are the cells that, if I remember right, control the secretion of the bone tissue. Yes. This is part of skeletal growth. Mm -hmm. So these are the cells that are critical for that. But they are not common to everything with bones. Some of the earliest bony animals didn't have osteocytes. Mm. And some modern fish don't have osteocytes. Mm. So the question was, when and for what purpose were they evolved? And the issue they ran into is that typically studying these kinds of cells uses the technique of slicing thin sections and looking at them under the microscope and taking a look at the cross section of the cell and the structure. Right. Which we talk about in lots of other news articles is the histology. We often use this when studying bone. And as useful as it is, it does lack one of the important features, which is the 3D structure. You don't actually get a look at the cell. You get a look at the outline of the cell, the cross-section of the cell, not the cell itself in its totality. So this research uses a new 3D imaging technique. This new technique uses a technology called focused ion beam milling and scanning electron microscopy. Of course. FibSim. Love it. And it is a technique, a method developed for engineering and other material sciences. But as Yara puts it, they saw a poster on it from of one of their colleagues and noticed that it was imaging the pores on a battery and how much it looked like cells, oh. prompting them to ask what kind of materials work with this. And they said... Stable, dry objects are the best. And they said, what's more stable than rock? (laughs) (laughs) So with this new technique, they got very detailed 3D images of these osteocytes. And another uh, anecdote that they shared is that they, uh, when they got the images, they were emailed to Yara. Upon first seeing them, they responded to confirm that it wasn't a simulation, that... This, is this a recreation? They're like, no, no, those are the images. Right. Did they send them this on the 1st of April? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's so high detail. Now, these don't show the actual bone cells because those decayed, but the cavity where the bone cells lived, occupied. Right. So these spaces of 400 million year old bone cells, and they were able to notice some interesting things. One, the main thing were little divots, as they described them, little pock marks around the cell that seemed that the bone tissue had been eaten away doesn't seem to be a sign of disease or injury but that it was dissolved that some of the bone had dissolved the tissue potentially so that the minerals calcium phosphorus and other minerals of the bone could be repurposed and brought back into the bloodstream okay 
which means that these osteocytes could have been turning the bone into a battery, a mineral battery for the animal to pull stored skeletal material and repurpose it back into their anatomy for other uses. Ah, so you're resorbing some of the bone material to then shuffle it off elsewhere. Yes. Huh. And some of these could be used for, like, nourishing the muscles to power the help power the muscles while they're moving and that this need for additional minerals could be one of the driving forces for cellular bone yeah i I guess i would imagine that this would make the bone more versatile yes right you have more options of what to do with this material and it gives you a reason to have more bone yeah and more cellular bone more osteocytes now they said this hypothesis has been around but This now corroborates and supports that hypothesis. Beforehand, it didn't really have the adequate support needed. Uh, This could be really crucial for things like migration and long-distance travel. You know, this might have allowed animals with these osteocytes to travel farther and longer than others who lacked it, which could have given them access to different territories, opened up migration behavior, Mm -hmm. period. You know, given them the stamina Right, the energy, the yeah, mm-hmm. the, the power was within them the whole time. Exactly. They have batteries that allow them to go a bit further or do a bit more. So it could have deep implications for the evolution of these early fish, these early armored fish, and how it affected their lifestyle. But they do also want to mention that, unfortunately, the FibSim imaging process does destroy uh, the surface that it images. So it can't be used just willy-nilly. Yeah. It has to be kind of used precisely for specific purposes. Sounds like we got to dig up more mermaid beetles. Yes. And so, yeah, this is just support for an interesting purpose for these bone cells that we had potentially suspected, but now we have good evidence for. That's very cool. I, I, I like a story where we notice that another field of study is doing a thing and we go, can we use that? Yes. That would be real helpful. Uh, for us to use what a cool set of news this episode mm-hmm. this was a weird selection of news uh, none of this was this was very odd with not one of these was like a new discovery of a new species or something no i like them these were yeah these were all a bit more abstract and and fun i follow yara hardy on the twitter uh and uh there's lots of lots of good posts to come from following yara so cool. find, find yara. also riley black's on twitter yes since we mentioned riley lots of cool people yeah well, I think that brings us to the end of our news. It sure seems to. Which means we can get ready to talk about youth sociality and what exactly that is. Yeah, let us let's the two of us form a union that works together <laughs> seamlessly and move forward to accomplish this task. So before we answer the question of what is eusociality, let's discuss what it means to be social. Mm-hmm. You know, the term social is one we're familiar with. Yeah, just doing stuff together. Yes, exactly. But being biologists, as they're wont to do, we have meticulously defined various levels of sociality. Of doing stuff togetherness. Yes, there are different categories that define the amount of social interaction we observe in an organism and we can kind of lay them out. And there is sort of a hierarchy. Now it is not a best to worst, you know, 
the lowliest and the most advanced, but a less to most social. Right. That is what this this ranking, this series of levels is meant to describe, how social is an organism. And as you might suspect, we start with solitary. Right. That, not social. That asocial. Only time you interact with others is for courtship and mating. Right. To make more of you, and then you go on your own ways. Uh, this applies to lots, lots of predators fall into this category. They don't hang out until it's time to make more predators. So solitary is at the bottom of the sociality ladder. We get to pre-sociality, pre-social, where you interact a little bit more than just mating, where we see some interaction, but not necessarily much more. So a lot of these are kind of, there may not be a hard line between Mm -hmm. them, as typically it is when you're going through categories, a spectrum of animal behavior. Pre-sociality, you're showing a little more interaction. Sub-sociality, parents care for the young. Okay, so familial sociality. Now you're being social with your offspring, but if adults hang out, you're not sub-social. Okay, so this makes me think of uh, certain rattlesnake species. Yes. Where the parents will, mom at least, will watch over the young for a little while, Mm -hmm. and then they all go their separate ways until mating time. Exactly, so that would be sub-social. Subsociality, you take care of your young for some length of time, but you don't hang out with the other grown-ups. We get into some kind of uh, 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 in-between categories sometimes. One list I found had solitary but social, huh? which is majority of your behavior is solitary, but you may come back and rest or nest in groups. Interesting. That you're not interacting while you're foraging or while you're out being you know, whatever animal you are, but when you come back to rest or mate, you do it in groups. Interesting. I wonder if this, because again, snakes, Mm -hmm. uh, garter snakes up north will do this, and a lot of snakes do this, where they will not really be gregarious, they won't really hang out together, but in hibernation time, they hibernate in groups. Yes. Which isn't exactly what you're describing. But but it's, it's on that cusp. Right, right. And then we get into a category called parasociality, Mm -hmm. which is kind of a a waste bin group. (laughs) Everything else. Of kind of everything else, but specifically three categories. Uh, So there's two common features of this. Parental care Mm -hmm. and socialization in a common cooperative dwelling. So a nest or a home that you are taking care of young and you're interacting in in a localized space. There are three levels here. We get to communal groups where adults interact in a single nesting site or or den or whatnot, but they care for their own young. Okay. So adults are hanging out, but they're taking care of their own baby. They're not, I'm not touching your baby. You're not touching mine. Uh, This makes me think of things like penguins. Mm -hmm. We're we're all grouping together. We're all nesting together. But if you touch my egg, I'll kill you. Right. (laughs) Like, we're not, my, (laughs) you You let me raise my kid the way I decide. Exactly. I know what's best for them. <laughs> and th- the parasociality ones are really convenient because each one takes a li- takes what was in the last and adds a little bit more. Okay. Quasi-sociality. You cohabitate together, same generation, so it's still like one generation of nesting or, or you know, grouping, and you share responsibilities of brood care. 
right. of your offspring. So now I'm helping take care of yours or I'm watching out for yours or maybe I watch while you go hunt. Right. You know, so now there's a little bit more cooperation. Okay. Uh, we're still all making babies and it's one generation of reproduction. Yeah, uh, but it's a group. It, it, it takes a village. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Now this is where we get oh so close. This is going to sound like you sociality to a lot of people. Semi-sociality. All the features so far. Nesting together, one generation, you're helping take care of each other's young, but there's now a caste system of breeding and non-breeding individuals. Okay. Those who are giving birth to offspring and those who are helping take care of them or do other duties. Okay. You know, like getting food or taking care of the, the nesting area. Now, that is typically what you think of when we think of eusociality. But eusociality takes one step further, and it is that it is multi-generational. Yeah. You're not, it's not one breeding session. It is previous generations all working together in this way. Right. When you think about like an ant colony or a beehive or, you know, whatever your, your colonial eusocial group is, that's something that's persisting beyond this nesting season. Yeah. It's not that you got together for mating season and became a colony. You are a colony throughout every mating season in that one spot together, all taking care of each other's young with some of you not having young at all. Yes. This is eusociality. True social animals. Now, there are typically four main criteria that you will see listed consistently to be considered eusocial. This will be handy because as we know from all of our discussions ever, the lines are always very oh, yes. blurry. And there's some where it's, it's still being argued if they really count, maybe. Yeah. Doesn't surprise me at all. So as we listed... Overlapping generations. Mm -hmm. You are generationally living together. Right. Daughters, mothers, grandmothers, great-grandmothers, all in one place. Yes. You have the cooperative brood care. Individuals other than the parents helping take care of the young. Now, this could just be gathering food or protection, but it could also be direct care. Mm -hmm. Philopatry, which is the term for staying in a centralized location. Okay. A communal home. You have a place. A nest, a colony, a hive, a termite tower. Yeah. That you all group together. Even if you move, that you are a unit and you come back to this common spot, this common central home. The The base definition for this is when individuals remain where they're born. Mm -hmm. You don't leave. You're not dispersing. You're staying where you were born. And then when new ones are born, you're going to help take care of those because they're also staying here. And then the fancy term for some of you not breeding is reproductive altruism. Right. So altruism, a term we use in our human society, is when an individual does something for another that benefits the other and does not benefit or is at the expense of the first individual. Right. When you lend your coat to somebody because it's cold out, but you now you don't have a coat. Now I don't have a coat. You have. It was very altruistic of you. Exactly. Which is a whole complex paradox in oh, yeah. animal evolution to begin oh, with. That's so many episodes. <laughs> Reproductive altruism is I'm not going to have babies, but I'm still going to take care of so that I can focus on taking care of your babies. Right. So these four, right, multi-generational, taking care of a group together, living in one spot. Some of you aren't reproducing, but you're helping with brood care. That we're describing, you know, an ant colony. An ant colony. Or something like that where there is a queen or maybe there's a couple of queens. Yes. 
giving birth. They're the ones reproducing. A lot of the babies grow up into many generations of the workers in the colony mm-hmm. who are caring for the queens, caring for the young, going out to get food, but always coming back to the colony. Exactly. Now, sometimes these caste systems, these reproductive and non-reproductive members, can be just that. Some have babies, some don't, and that's about it. Mm. Uh, Typically, you'll see these in what we call primitive eusocial organisms, where there's no difference, just some of you are giving birth and some of you aren't. And that's about it. In the advanced eusocial organisms, once again, these are not saying better or worse, but that these have gone a bit further down the evolutionary line of this lifestyle, and now we see a morphological difference. Right. Physical differences between the castes that the non-reproductive members look different than the reproductive members. And then you can take that a step further that they become specialized. Right. And this is when you get a queen Mm -hmm. who is a unique... When you see the queen in one of these colonies, you know you're looking at the queen. Because they look totally different from everybody else. This is known as polyethism. And you have caste polyethism, which is your shaped different... You were born a worker, you were born a soldier, you were born a queen, you were born a you know a, a male to go mate with other queens. But there's also age polyethism, which is just that the different ages occupy those different caste rankings. Right. So like as you grow up, yeah. the you... young act as the workers, the older ones act as the soldiers. Oh cool. So Even within eusociality, which seems like it's kind of a a strict set of rules, there's tons of variety, lots of diversity, not one way to do it. For instance, a lot of times we see some form of manipulation to keep the non-breeders not breeding. Right. And that could be that they are non-reproductive. Right. Like genetically, physically, you just can't do it. Can't make babies. They just don't do it. But there are plenty of instances where... The non-reproducing members are physically reproductive. They just don't. Sometimes it's hormonal that Mm. the reproductive members keep them, you know, docile or keep that behavior under control with pheromones. Sometimes it's behavioral. There's lots of examples of harassment. Mm -hmm. If they notice someone laying eggs that shouldn't be, they are bullied. Yeah, which is something we see even in Mm non-eusocial, you know, chimps and lions do that. Exactly. And other times it may be that it's uh, developmental, that if I don't give you enough food, you won't reach the ability to become developmentally mature. Yeah, this is like Jurassic Park. Uh, they require a specific hormone yes. at a specific point in development, and we simply deny them that. So complex, multi-level. We are not going to get to every aspect of eusociality, mostly just because depending on what group you're talking about, it's a whole different list of n- specific little details and little quirks and little oddities with that group. Right. We're going to be taking, obviously, a very broad look. But an important note, there are both benefits and costs to being eusocial. It is not just that you are now this unstoppable horde. Yeah. There are some obvious benefits. You now have better defense against predators. Ants together strong. Right. We are legion. We are legion. Larger groups may have an advantage against other competitors. You now can work as a team, you know, and outcompete someone who either doesn't work as well as a team or isn't working as a team at all. There's strategic options that open up for, like, 
gathering resources, you know, you can spread out and do it differently than single individuals can. And that central location means you can bunker down. You know, you get you gain benefits from having not needing to move to a new home. You you have a home. You have a home. You don't have to worry about being nomadic or traveling to new food sources if you're able to lock this one down. You also can inherit. You're born into a home. You don't have to find one. You don't have to go find a home or make a home. And if there's limited resources, limited food, limited living space, this means, hey, we're here. Everyone else can, you know, bug out. Right. You, so to speak. You, ha- you have to go find your own spot. We've locked this one down in this harsh environment. Right. Our, our colony has been in this region for generations. Yes. Or we've locked this food source down. You know, we've built our home on this food source. Mm-hmm. So we now can protect and isolate it from other competitors. Yeah. Now the costs, you now have a group that you have to compete with. Yes. You are now one out of many and... You are you are legion. You are legion, <laughs> and everyone has to eat. Yeah. So now there's a lot of mouths to feed. Mm-hmm, there's competition. Resources. If they go thin, your numbers are going to dwindle. You have increased transmission for diseases and parasites. That's true. You're More living, bodies. Yep. You're living in a community, pressed together, interacting. Yeah. This is uh, an epidemiological mm-hmm. concept. It, when diseases spread in human cultures, yeah. But cities are more vulnerable than farmland. Yep. And you're now more easy to find. Yeah, you're in one place. You're, hey, look, that's an anthill. <laughs> yeah, when a bear decides that it wants some honey, it knows where to go. Yep. It would also seem to me that if you're in one place and that place gets bad, mm-hmm. it's harder to move. Yes. Right? It's harder to up and move an entire ant colony to go find a new home. So if things go really bad in this place you've locked down, you're kind of in trouble. Yes. Uh, and if you only have certain members reproducing... That would, you know, I'm thinking of the classic example of the one queen. Mm-hmm. Well, that kind of means that if something happens to that queen, now, at least until you get a new one, there's no reproduction happening. Absolutely. So, yeah, the, uh, trade-offs. Also, one of the benefits you didn't mention is that it's awesome. It's so cool. You're just so cool. And it just some of the strangest, weirdest behaviors in some of the coolest groups develop this use social lifestyle. Yeah. This term originally was coined in 1966 by Suzanne Batra to describe the behavior of halictine bees, which is a a group of bees that we will discuss more later on. And so it was originally used for bees. And over time, as we just observed more groups, more were added into this to to be described by this term. Uh, But we started with beehives. Cool. And it was in... 1969 that we got an expansion on it by Charles Michener, who expanded on the term and added in some of the categories, some of the criteria that originally started with egg layers and worker-like individuals, overlap of generations, and cooperative work on the cells of the honeycombs. So once again, still working on bees, but now we had the beginnings of our criteria. And it's evolved since then as we've realized it's more than just bees oh very cool yeah well i think that i speak for our listeners when i say i'm ready to hear some examples i think that's good timing i have ideas in my head i know bees i know ants i know termites i know some others that i'm sure you'll bring up yeah but tell who who's doing this so early on it was really focused at hymenoptera right which are your bees wasps and ants and 
this makes sense because the vast majority of eusocial animals are arthropods. Oh yeah, and even and hymenopterans have yep. really done an excellent job at it. For a long time, eusociality referred to hymenopterans. It wasn't until later that we realized others should be included. But hymenoptera really is the the golden child example for eusocial animals, especially Aculeata, which is a subclade of hymenoptera and is characterized by the modification of the ovipositor into a sting. Bees and wasps? Bees and wasps and ants. And ants? Which also includes all the eusocial hymenopterans. Most hymenopterans are not eusocial. Right. But it is extremely common in them compared to other groups. And even though they're in the stinging hymenopteran category, that doesn't mean they all sting. Many of them have lost the ability to sting. Let's start with bees, since that's what got this term rolling. Now, once again, though we think of beehive, like that's, most bees aren't eusocial. They're moderately, it's moderately common among them. There's tons of solitary or semi-social or, you know, almost eusocial bees, but lots aren't eusocial. The group that often gets brought up are the halictine bees, the halictinae, which is a subfamily and is the largest and and most diverse species-wise of the halictid subfamilies, the four of them, comprising 2,400 species. Wow. And the reason that it gets brought up so often is because it, in that group, ranges from completely solitary to obligate eusocial. You know, that is the only way they survive. Right, you can survive without a hive. Mm-hmm. And so with bees, we have the gamut. Cool. They show every level. Some of them can show eusocial-esque behavior in the right conditions. We'll talk about that a little bit later, mm-hmm. and we'll come back to these bees. But bees, pretty common, pretty regular. Uh, the common queen bee surrounded by workers who are female and the queen bee fertilized by males, who that's basically all they do. Wasps, once again, are not all eusocial, but there's still a bunch of eusocial ones. This one I was able to get some numbers. And according to at least the source I got these from, there are 1,100 species of paper wasps that are eusocial, 24 hornets in the genus Vespa that are eusocial, and 43 species of yellow jackets in a couple of genuses that are eusocial. So decent numbers. Like, once again, not all wasps. Tons of solitary wasps. Tons that don't work well with others. A lot of your parasitoid wasps aren't making colonies, aren't making nests. So even though this is the group we think of, like, yeah, eusociality, hymenopterans, it's it's obvious. There's lots who don't do it. It's still not the most common lifestyle among this group. Until we get to ants. (laughs) (laughs) Ants, just to throw some numbers out. To get some perspective, there are more than 12,000 identified species of ants, with some estimates putting the actual number up around 20,000. They're found on all continents except for Antarctica and a slew of islands. And I liked this just because I feel like this is, is awesome, just to know. As far as biomass goes, they're estimated to contribute 15 to 20% on average and in the tropics, maybe up to 25%, so a quarter of total terrestrial animal biomass, which exceeds all the vertebrates. Yep. All ants are eusocial. <laughs> a real specialized group. <laughs> so this is what, not only is it a huge group, but they all do it. Or at least 
basically all of them. Mm -hmm. There are still some that are less, you know, specialized that all the workers, all the workers and breeders basically look the same, but then some that get really crazy specialized. But basically every ant has a colony. Yes. And is taking care of the young of one or a few queens who are laying the eggs. And that is just a feature of ants. In a similar boat are termites. Yeah, which are not hymenopterans. Not hymenopterans. They're oh. more closely related to cockroaches. Totally separate group mm -hmm. uh, of insects. Isopterans. Yes. But not quite the same numbers. 4,000 species. But once again, all eusocial. Yeah, they, yeah they're, they're, they're the not ants. They're the not ants. And in some areas seem could potentially have similar biomasses to ants, especially in like the tropics, and show similar specializations in their caste systems with soldiers and workers in the queen, some getting really crazy with having like uh, glue cannons on their face. Yeah. Well, and then termites are also, you know, whereas bees and wasps are famously hive makers, mm -hmm. termites, not all termites, but certain termites are famous mound builders. Yeah. But these are not the only insects that are eusocial. Uh, there are other eusocial insects, less well known and less famous, but they're out there. Thrips are teeny tiny insects in the order Thysinoptera, which are like one millimeter long. Very tiny. Or less. Itty bitty, slender, fringed wings, and they feed mostly on plants, sucking out the, the juices. Some are predators, but out of the 5,000 roughly species, about 300 form nests in the plants and create galls, little growths in the plant the plant's reaction to their invasion. And of those, there are six known species that form galls that protect the gall eusocially. Oh, cool. That defend it from kleptoparasites trying to steal their food or predators with reproductive queens and non-reproductive soldier castes. Neat. Uh, fun linguistic fact that I happen to know about thrips. Thrips is both singular and plural. Cool. A thrips. A thrips. Mm -hmm. I love it. That just makes them more cute. There's a very similar scenario with social aphids. Yep. That also form galls. Uh, the poplar spiral gall aphid is one of these. Lives in the gall, eats on the plant. With breeding and soldier cast, these do show physical differences. The normal-legged aphids are the reproductives or reproductives to be. And the thick-legged aphids act as soldiers. Makes sense. A bit more reinforced. Some of them even have a, a stylet to attack invaders. For jabbing. For like jabbing. A, a little horn. Mm-hmm. And they have to defend because they have to open the gall every so often to release winged aphids to go create new colonies. That's really cool. And get rid of waste. And it takes about 10 days for the gall to close back up, so they have to defend the border. That's awesome. Right? There's also weevils. The Australian weevil. Australoplatypus incompertus, which burrow tunnels into living wood. So not a log like some termites do, but actually a tree. A fertilized female goes in there, starts a colony, and starts burrowing tunnels, leaving larvae and fungal spores. And then she is she is then protected by the unfertilized females that are born. And she, the only fertilized one, continues to lay eggs. So it's not just our famous bees, wasps, ants, and termites that create eusocial colonies in insects, but there are a few others. And then there are a few non-insect arthropods that are shown to do this. One of the most famous and weirdest are Synalpheus shrimps, 
which are a type of parasitic shrimp that lives in sponges. They're a genus of snapping shrimp, which includes the famous pistol shrimp. So they have one large claw that snaps and creates loud noises and little forces. Neat. Within this genus, there are about nine species known to create eusocial colonies within the sponges that they are parasitically living inside. Ooh. Yeah. I know that that's not, the idea of a group of parasites creating a eusocial colony inside the body of another living organism isn't actually weird because so many of them do it with plants. Yep. But it just feels different when it's an animal. Yeah, no, that's wrong. That you're you're it inside a, an animal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and these can be big colonies, like hundreds of shrimps. Huh. And they defend their home because they can't expand it. They're limited by it, so they act as fortress defenders and are notable as the only aquatic eusocial animal. Interesting. The only one we've ever discovered. Nine species, but this is the only group. Huh. And that's just kind of a phenomena with eusociality. It seems to be almost entirely terrestrial, and we're not 100% sure why. It could just be that water does not allow for some of the things that typically we'd be doing on land. It's hard to dig burrows if the sediment will collapse. And it's hard to build like a paper nest if the water will crush it when a wave comes by. Yeah. And you can only really do it in the shallows where there's stuff to build on and sunlight can get to you. So like there may just be restrictions, but we don't really know why it's so rare in aquatic groups. Interesting. And then there is one last arthropod that might partially kind of get into this. And that's the tangleweb spiders. Yeah, I had heard that there were potentially eusocial spiders. And so these are definitely social. And they do have a caste system, but it's a little bit different. So these are spiders that live in North and South America. Anolocymus eximus is the species. And they show a feature called social polymorphism. There are two phenotypes. A social group that live communally and an antisocial phenotype that are solitary. And so there are two kind of caste systems, but they're not in the colony. But in the colony, they create these massive webs that they share together, the social ones, living together and sharing in brood care and capturing of prey. Wow, this makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. Like spiders, it seems like they're primed for this kind of living. Now, I don't know if there are reproductive and non-reproductive castes. Right. Uh, I haven't, I didn't see it mentioned in anywhere. So they might technically not fit all the categories of eusociality. Right. But they fit the rest. And that does happen with some of these groups where it's not, it's not a perfect one-to-one fit with other eusocial groups. Right. But there are enough features that if it's not, if these spiders aren't eusocial, they're really close. A thought that I'm having uh, right now is... What is the dietary range of eusocial animals? So we, I know we have bees, mm-hmm. which oftentimes are very famously uh, polynivorous or, or some kind of other... Nectivorous. Nectivorous, right? Eating plant materials. Yeah. Uh, termites, obviously, are often feeding on wood. Yeah. But then ants... Can be predatory. Can be predatory, which is a, just absolutely terrifying. Yep. Eusocial predators. Spiders, I assume that these are... Yeah. Predatory, like basically all They're spiders. catching prey in the web. So I, I was going to say, I wonder if the reason that they are less eusocial mm-hmm. is because they're predatory and then that's harder to, you know, if you can't scavenge, for example, it's harder 
to live in a eusocial lifestyle. But ants pull it off just ants fine. Pull a lot of wasps. I was going to say, yeah, wasps are often predatory. Yeah. So interesting. It's it may just it may be that it fast forward sometime we might have fully you know 100% agreed upon you social spiders like in the future as well yes exactly (laughs) and i can only hope (laughs) and then we have one last potentially category yes we do which is the only chordates that we know of so far the only non-arthropod group that shows you sociality which are mole rats two species Famously, the naked mole rats mm-hmm. is usually what you hear, but also Demarland mole rats. So just to take a moment, this is a behavior, a lifestyle that has evolved in bees, ants, wasps, spiders, termites, shrimp, and then some rodents. A couple of rodents. Some mammals. And it is kind of shocking how closely their society resembles the others yeah this isn't like a technicality it's like Mm -hmm. well okay technically yeah you in your weird mammal way you are you social no no they're like an ant colony now whether or not these are in the same group or not i i had trouble verifying wikipedia separated them with african mole rats the family bathyergidae and I've seen some that includes both the damarland and the naked mole rat in there one paper one recent paper included them but uh, Wikipedia, they were separate based on some other research that found naked mole rats to be outside of the African mole rat family. Gotcha. In a sister, a separate family, the the Heterocephalidae. So whether or not it's the same group that gave two species or two groups that gave two species, it is still two species that seem to have come to it convergently. Right. Independently. Yes. A, a, so not one group of mammals, but Two closely related groups. Absolutely. That both achieved eusociality. Now, they're mostly very similar. They're both African. Uh, They're both subterranean, making colonies underground. Uh, There are some differences. The naked mole rat is a bit smaller than the Damarland, but tends to have much larger colonies. Like, the Damarland can get up to, like, 40 individuals. Uh, Naked mole rats can have 100 or so. Both tend to, though, have one reproducing queen and then non-reproducing workers Mm -hmm. like ants like ants Uh, but there is some difference there i found one description i found of the damarland mole rats said that they have a breeding pair and that the male's actually dominant Hmm. then the breeding female then the non-breeding males then the non-breeding females while in the naked mole rats the queen is by far the dominant keeping all the other females in check and is at the top of the social totem pole but otherwise, fairly similar. Now, these do not seem to have actual caste systems where the workers are physically differentiated from birth, but are differentiating their tasks based on the age of the non-reproducing rats. Gotcha. Which has brought some to question whether these really count as eusocial, but most still count them as eusocial. They still fill the requirements, even if it's a little bit different because it's a mammal, not an insect. So... Mm. Maybe some of the reproductive things that we'd expect are a little different. Behaviorally, socially, they are eusocial. And then just super weird. Just a really quick mention. They're so weird. They're They're so so weird. They're so bizarre. Naked mole rats. I didn't find any of these weird things listed for the Damarlin, so I don't know that they share them. Uh, But naked mole rats are known to have weird thermoregulation. They don't maintain body temperature like most mammals do. They're not quote unquote warm blooded the same way as most mammals. They have high tolerance of low oxygen environments because Mm -hmm. they're underground. 
their pain sensitivity is almost non-existent on the skin. Like Francis. Yep. <laughs> they they don't have the right neurotransmitters on their their cutaneous fibers. They're resistant to cancer and live a ridiculously long time, like up to 30 years. Yeah. And we mentioned them in episode 107 when we were talking about tusks, because yep. they kind of, maybe, sort of have tusks. Yes. They have ever-growing incisors that are often outside of the mouth. Which is true for the Damarlins. They're just also fuzzy, so they're not naked. Huh. Uh, they they fuzzy look, mole rats. They look like a fuzzy mole rat. Clothed mole rat. That's exactly what they look like. They It's just a one-for-one, one except one shaved, and the other one didn't. So, in the future, when we have true eusocial spiders, perhaps we will also get truly cast-differentiated yeah. giant colonies of naked mole rats. With just these huge, monstrous tusks, and like an just army ant. take over Africa. Yeah. We can only hope. And then there's one last category that I have to mention, which is there have been suggestions and even proposals at Symposia that we, humans count as you social i was gonna ask if you didn't bring it up yeah because we have a caste system we work we we work together to take care of each other we're often sharing responsibilities of raising children there was uh, at least one example i found of edward wilson uh, a scientist who called humans you social apes and pointed to similarities between us and ant colonies that we work together to take care of our young we distribute duties and we tend to live in centralized societies, mm -hmm. building cities and towns and villages. Now, this has been aggressively discounted by many and criticized. So it is not a definite that we count as you social, but you will see our human hat thrown into the ring in many discussions because there is some parallels. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if we really qualify for our own category. Mm hmm uh, because there are a lot of differences between what we do and what ants and naked mole rats and such are doing. Absolutely. But also, it, it, there's a lot in common. Well, it's one of those where we're definitely doing it differently, but the end result is surprisingly similar. Like, yes. a city compared to an ant colony is almost unnervingly recognizable. Yeah. So, it it is one of those... How much How much are we willing to, how close a look are we willing to take at our lives? Yeah. Uh, so, so far, those are the eusocial organisms we're aware of. That's not to say there aren't others we have yet to discover or ones that we've yet to recognize. Right. You know, many of these took years after the term was coined for people to go, oh, you know what? I guess those rats are a colony. Right. There may be more, more things in the seas. Exactly. That will count as eusocial. And so, so far, this is what we know of, but who knows what's to come? Yeah, I knowing us and our, our very self-centered way of describing and naming things, we'll come up for a new term for ourselves. Yep. But we'll have to, the reason we don't have one, presumably, is because you social means true social. Yep. The, what is truer than true? Exactly. That's what we are. Yes, yes. Better, better true. <laughs> Truer. Now, this leads us into the question of how do you get this way? How do you go from being a solitary insect, a bee, making a nest and laying eggs, to a hive? Mm -hmm. How do you make that transition? How does this evolve? Yes, exactly. So we will talk about that after the break and take a look at the potential ways eusociality can evolve. Neat.
Now, studying the evolution of eusociality does come with some complications. We're studying a behavior. Yep. So definitely saying when the behavior evolved is sometimes difficult for certain groups. A lot of times it's based off a genetic analysis of predicting when we likely would have seen the origins of this uh, behavior in this group. Sometimes we do have fossil evidence if we're able to find members of a group that have what typically are eusocial traits, like features that are indicating they have castes. Right, like something that seems to be a queen or a Mm -hmm. soldier or something like that. Exactly. But often it is based off of either our understanding of the group or the earliest fossil we have that seems to show traits of eusociality. Right. I would imagine that most of the fossil record of eusocial animals is the fossil record of modern groups that are eusocial. And we say, yes, we found this kind of bee. And since all of this kind of bee today are eusocial, there's a good bet that this was a eusocial bee. Exactly. Which means we don't have a robust fossil section just to go through examples, but we can go through some of the evolutionary trends. And so this will be a bit more evolutionary discussion than our our typical go through the fossil record, especially since we've got a bunch of groups. So we would have to go through each of their fossil records. <laughs> we, we can't do the fossil record of eusociality because it's different for every group. Right. But there are some interesting things. We, of course, see multiple origins of eusociality because we're seeing it in different groups. Right. Mammals, spiders, mm-hmm. insects, etc. But what is interesting is that we see multiple origins even within groups. Some groups more than others, like in wasps and bees, it's been estimated up to 11 individual occurrences, separate evolutionary origins of eusociality within various groups of bees and wasps. We see what looks like three origins within the shrimps. Huh. Yeah. Separate origins within... Within those nine species? Yeah. Oh, cool. Estimated, at least, it seems likely, twice with the mole rats, one for each species. Right. Once, maybe twice for our thrips, but then for the beetles we know of and ants and termites, seems once for each. So ants and termites being two of the biggest eusocial groups, it seems to be ancestral. Yeah, that's what an ant and what a termite is. Exactly. And then we also see a varying of time ranges. Here, I want to focus a little bit on the Hymenoptera because this is where we start to run into issues with studying the evolution of eusociality. So for a lot of our highly eusocial groups, ants, termites, a lot of your wasps, and a lot of your corbiculate bees, we see fairly old origins, going back to the Cretaceous. Some just a bit more than 65 million years old, some a good bit older than that. And this runs into some issues because it means that what we have are highly eusocial and we don't have much left of the origins of their eusociality. Every member of the ant group is very eusocial. Right. So it's hard to discover, to study what their origins might have looked like when there aren't really any ants that are betraying that. Right. We we don't have any examples mm-hmm. of what a non-eusocial ant looks like. So we don't know what the starting point could have been. And when it comes to ants and termites, this goes back a ways. There was a discovery of ants and termites in Burmese amber, so 100 million years old, that show signs of being eusocial. Ooh. So ants and termites seem to have been highly eusocial for 
over a hundred million years. Which makes sense, given that that's what all of them are mm-hmm. today. Your two options there are either that you have basically always been that way. Yep. Or that you were diverse and for some reason all the non-eusocial options have disappeared. And the way they were able to identify it in the amber is pretty cool. With the ants, it was obvious. They had queens and workers frozen in the amber. That's awesome. So there's part of a colony. With the termites, it was a little trickier. They didn't have the different castes, but they had some anatomical features that suggested social behavior. Specifically, the shape of their antenna, which are showed features of social termites today, which use their antenna for communication and recognizing individuals of the colony. Gotcha. And so they have social antenna suggesting that these are eusocial termites. Cool. Right? So if we've got eusocial ants and termites at 100 million years old, that suggests that the evolution of eusociality in those groups had already happened either from early ants and termites Mm -hmm. or from the ancestors of ants and termites. Exactly. So that eusociality in those groups goes back even further than this. Precisely. Now, once again, this makes it difficult to study what that early development in these groups might have looked like because it's so far back and we don't have solid evidence for it and we can't observe it. This is where the halictine bees comes in. This is why their name keeps popping up. So this was that diverse group of bees that ranges from solitary to fully eusocial. Not only do they have a diverse range of behavior, sociality, the evolution of eusociality in this group seems to be very recent compared to other hymenopterans. 20 to 22 million years old. Well, that's not very old at all. Not very old at all. This means that they could very likely be a model for primitive eusociality in hymenopterans. Uh, so an early stage, a group that is only recently mm-hmm. achieved eusociality. And there seems to be three separate origins of eusociality within this group. So it's shown up multiple times. So we have multiple origins to look at instead of just one. There's a range of sociality levels within this group, and it's recent. So a lot of research looks at these bees to see, try to get ideas for what patterns do we see And potentially those could be applied or at least give us ideas for other hymenopteran groups, how it might have originated in them. What a cool group. Right? So that's why their name keeps popping up. They're very useful for studying the origins of eusociality. And another quirk of this group that we haven't talked about is there's at least potentially 12 times that it's been reversed. Oh, that it's gone from eusocial back to another style of sociality. Exactly. And in some cases, all the way back to solitary. Wow. So we also have reversal of this evolutionary trend, which gives us another way to study it. Ooh. And could indicate that reversals like this may have been common in the origins of other groups. That makes sense. That You're going back and forth. Mm-hmm, that only once you get fully eusocial do you kind of lock into it. But early on, you would have seen some becoming more so, less so. It was not necessarily this steady march right which fits with what we've talked about this in the evolution of many features in many groups that it is very rarely a straight path from where you started to where you ended up there's a lot of experimentation there's a you know we've talked about this with dinosaurs mm-hmm. and you know flight and feathers that it wasn't just that one group of dinosaurs gradually 
evolved to fly. Yes. There were lots of different groups with different orientations. A bunch were gliding. A few might have also been flying. You had early birds that were flying. You had some that lost flight. Mm -hmm. Just this whole mosaic of experimentation would not surprise me at all if eusociality has followed a similar trend. Especially because, at least according to current hypotheses and suggestions, it's not a simple step from solitary to eusocial. There are a couple of stages that you'll often see listed out that a group, an organism needs to go through to acquire all the things that it needs to become eusocial. So let's take a look at those steps. The the four or five step program to becoming eusocial. <laughs> um, the first one's pretty obvious. You have to start forming groups. Right. You can't be solitary. No. You have to stop being solitary. You have to get out there and mingle. This is why I will never be you social. Yep, right? You're, you're missing out. You're missing out on the hive mind, buddy. Well, bears, <laughs> bears know where to find you. I don't want any of that. Now, this could occur a number of ways. It could be nesting. It could be food sources. It could be migration that we all moved together. It could be parent and offspring starts the group. Yeah, hibernating like the yep. garter snakes I mentioned. Absolutely. It could be that you group together to do something. You know, cooperation was important, and so it helped you to cooperate. Often grouped in this stage is the formation of a home base, a nest, a den, mm-hmm. that if you're grouping together, very commonly you're going to have some place to group together. So stage one, become a group. Right. So I'm thinking like dogs. Yeah. Like wild dogs. You're mm-hmm. hunting together. You're maybe raising young together. You have a little den that you, you hang out with. Or butterflies that migrate in mass together and hang out on a tree together as oh, yeah. they're stopping during migrations. Yeah, yeah. So any form. it's it. This is varied and vague. Uh, a, a theme that will be common during this discussion of the evolution of eusociality, there are many hypotheses. None of them are necessarily directly contradictory to one another some may overlap some may be in place of others it it is kind of a mosaic especially since a lot of it is not fully agreed upon whether it works the way some people says it works and for all we know there could be as many different paths to you sociality as there are you social species absolutely stage two is the accumulation of what they call pre-adaptations the accumulation of things that will benefit you you socially. So things that would be good, even if it's not that you're you social now, it's kind of like the DNA markers for the venom. Yep. It's not that these are made for venom, but if you were to evolve venom, it sure would be convenient to have these genetic markers. Right. Or like going back to the flight example, mm-hmm. you have to. You're going to have to have some sort of limb that you can use for flying. You're probably going to have to be pretty small. Mm -hmm. A few features that aren't exclusive to things that fly. Exactly. But if you didn't start with those, you're not going to end up flying. Yeah. You don't have to. You don't have to fly if you have these features, but you kind of have to have these features to fly. Yep. That's what we're talking about here. Uh, Now, there are a couple of preconditions. Uh, You need to have altricial offspring. So young that need care that you're taking care of. Yeah. If if they they hatch and they're fine, then what what do they need a colony for? Exactly. And lower reproductive success of solitary pairs versus group. Oh, it has to be beneficial to reproduce in a group. Exactly. Now, these preconditions are about as diverse as the ways you can become a group. There are some great examples in hymenopterans, like some bees 
show the predisposition if grouped together or if put in hard times to start behaving more social you socially like solitary bees but then if you group them together or if they have to be forced together because of resources they'll start acting a little bit more like a hive with certain ones taking on certain roles and in some cases even deferring to a single female who starts acting kind of like a queen so they have it within them exactly the behaviors in there even though they aren't you social right it well it's a conditional behavior Mm mm-hmm Exactly. When the situation calls for it, it's a way you can behave. We also see this in the way certain hymenopterans nest, that there's kind of stages to the way you could build a nest as a hymenopteran. One is called mass provisioning, which is you build a nest, you put an egg in there with like the paralyzed prey or thing the offspring needs, you close the nest, you move on to make a new nest. While progressive provisioning, which is the pre-adaptation in this case is you build a nest, lay eggs, and then feed or protect or guard those eggs in that nest. And so if you shift from laying individual nests to start laying them together and guarding it, even if you aren't eusocial, that's a good building block for eusociality. Right. Uh, there are some specific examples like termites have a symbiosis with gut bacteria that let them digest the wood pulp that they eat. But every time they molt, they lose the lining of their hindgut and lose that colony of bacteria. And they need to get it by eating fecal material of other termites. Uh, so you, if you want to eat, you got to hang out with the other termites. You have to be social. Because of this symbiosis, it forces the termites to interact anyway, which is a good step toward further socialization. But the environment could also be a pre-adaptation. If you're in an environment where resources are limited, so you all have to hang out on this tree because it's the only tree for miles, the environment is helping force you together and giving you a reason to get along. Right. You know, if the environment's hard to find homes or hard to find food or there's lots of competition, these are also things that could act as pre-adaptations to your sociality. So you need to start hanging out. Then you need to start developing features and behaviors that will aid you in taking the next step to your sociality right you have to you have to be a little more complex a little more intentional so to speak yeah yeah a, a little more of a developed sense of cooperation even if it's not that you're acting you socially if it's for another reason i'm grouping my eggs together in one nest because it's easier to guard has nothing to do with being social but then when i happen to get grouped with others and we all group our eggs in one nest now that was that turned out to be beneficial, right? We, or we can all well all lay our eggs in the same place because this is the only tree. Yep, that we can use. But now we're setting the stage. Exactly. Now this third phase is a little bit more vague, mostly because we don't fully understand what these things are that you need to get, which is you need to develop eusocial alleles. You right. need to start showing genetic features for eusociality. Issue being, we don't know what those alleles are. We don't know what the genetic markers for eusociality are, though some have been noted in some groups potentially. So this is one where this is a supposed, proposed, hypothesized step, Mm -hmm. even if we don't actually have an answer for what those genetic markers look like. I mean, I would imagine that once you are in a situation where you have those sort of foundational behaviors and foundational uh, lifestyles that could lead later mm-hmm. to you sociality 
that that will put you in a situation where you are under selective pressure to improve that social behavior, which is a pressure that could end up acting on your genetics, which could lead to whatever the particular Mm -hmm. genetic format is that is going to be useful later on. Yes, absolutely. And they note that it doesn't have to be necessarily development of new traits. It could be the suppressing of an old trait. If you start developing new mutations that lower your aggression to your own species, that is an allele that could help you be more eusocial. Right. You know, things like that. So it's not, there's lots of ways it could go. (laughs) There's, once again, this is a mosaic of things that could be in this step, but now you need to start genetically adapting to a more, at least pro-eusocial lifestyle. And then the fourth phase is you become eusocial. You know, you start evolving. Now, parents and young are in one place. Subordinates are taking care of the young, but not breeding. And selection can start acting on the group in a way, or the shared selective pressures than just the individuals. And now you're evolving eusocially. Right. You're evolving kind of together, not individually, which we will talk about a bit more later on because there's some controversy around that idea in general. And then the final phase is that now the life cycle matches the colony, that the life cycle starts to adapt to colony life, that you're not just having individual life cycles, you're having a colonial life cycle. And now you're you social. So we can imagine a scenario where upon any of innumerable paths, Mm -hmm. You have a group of organisms that starts getting in the habit of hanging out together for whatever reason, that starts getting in the habit of tolerating each other, maybe nesting together, maybe hunting together, you know, some kind of cooperative behavior that then leads them to develop genetic traits that improve their ability to collaborate and to tolerate each other and to live together and to work together until eventually you have a scenario where where some of us are doing different tasks, some of us are reproducing. I could see the reproductive shifts uh, starting out as an age thing. Right. Maybe the oldest ones, you know, the ones who are sexually mature, are reproducing and the younger ones are taking care of the young until they're old enough mm-hmm. to become reproductive. You could come at it from any number of different ways of gradually accumulating the pieces that will eventually come together into what we would consider true eusociality. Yes, absolutely. And a lot of um, papers and descriptions of this process will often mention a feature or stage or point along this path that they call the point of no return, at which point whatever organism it is has developed enough eusocial traits that they can't survive without the eusocial colony. Right. So to use my example, if you reached reproductive maturity and through your evolutionary history, it has become, you have become so dependent on the others to take care of you and your young. Now, if that starts to break apart, you can't survive anymore. Exactly. That now you need that and the young need to take care of you in order for there to be more young, in order for them to be able to get more collaborators to survive long enough. Eventually those pieces start to become locked in place 
they become givens that if removed, the species will suffer. And a lot of times this is suggested to be characterized by when individuals become locked in a behavioral role where, hey, if I'm shaped like a soldier, I can't live as a worker. You know, if I'm shaped like a queen, I can't dig tunnels like one of the the other ants. And you're physically or behaviorally locked into the role you play in the colony. And to, I, f- I feel like this just gives neat perspective. With this point of no return aspect in mind, that means that termites and ants hit this over 100 million years ago. Oh, yeah. And so that that's what we mean when we say point of no return is that they've become so eusocial, there's no going back, which is you're locked into it at that point, at least according to this mentality and hypothesis. And this isn't too difficult to imagine when we look at other organisms, you know, right off the bat, in many, many species, babies don't survive without parents. Yes, exactly. That is a stage of life, a form of the species that needs this social aspect. Uh, You can imagine uh, groups where you have older individuals. You know, there's been talk about this in things like whales and primates that the oldest individuals serve an important function in the in the culture in the group but they're old enough that they wouldn't survive without the group so if they're serving an important function now you have a cast sort of mm-hmm. that is important for the group but also needs the group to survive so you can find these examples of sort of how you might start seeing this differentiation of of casts within a group when I, I can kind of think of a of a business growing that like you know if you start a, a home business by yourself it's fine and then as it gets bigger you need to add in more people you know you ha- need to have people who are bringing you stock of whatever stuff you need or you need an accountant or you need a social media person or you need an HR person as you get more staff and then at some point it gets to where like can you just delete the HR department well no not really. Yep. Not to keep functioning like you're functioning. Now, now you need that. Can we just get rid of the truck drivers? Nope, not really. Because if you start having other people drive trucks, then they can't do their jobs. And so at some point, it now is this self-sustaining, you know, held up under its own weight and construction that you can't take a piece or else it will Jenga down. Now, that's the concept of how you can go from solitary to you social or some lower level of sociality to true social but there's still a question remaining and it's why would you stop breeding how could you evolve to stop passing on your genes as part of this altruistic reproduction that is kind of the hallmark of biology exactly natural selection is driven by the mentality of your success is based on how much you're able to breed and pass on to the next generation you specifically yes and you sociality kind of flies in the face of that. Yeah. You have a colony of thousands of ants and almost all of them are not reproducing. Yep. Are not passing on their genes, are not therefore being selected through reproductive natural selection. So how can that happen? And this problem was noticed early on. Darwin quoted saying that it was one of the biggest holes in his theory. He was quoted discussing sterile workers in social insects as the one special difficulty 
which at first appeared to me insuperable and actually fatal to my whole theory. (laughs) (laughs) At first. At first. He did come up with a solution. There have been many, many hypotheses laid out as to how it could actually be beneficial to not have babies from an evolutionary natural selection standpoint. And as mentioned earlier, they are not mutually exclusive. Some may play a bigger role in one group while others are more important in another. Some have kind of been phased out, but still may have some impact. This is a very still dynamic and heavily discussed and debated aspect of evolution of social evolution mm-hmm. why and how do you evolve to not reproduce darwin's initial solution was that if the trait of sterility of non-reproducing could be carried without being expressed so you have the trait to be sterile but you are not sterile then those that are sterile can help the reproductive relatives and still pass on that sterile trait So that if it's active in some and not active in others, by helping them, that trait is still persisting, which explains why it can keep coming up. Right. Now, this is not accurate to what we now understand, but it that was kind of one of the earliest explanations. The main hole in this is that for many groups, they aren't actually sterile. Hmm. They just don't breed. They could, and they have the ability to lay eggs, and some of them even to become a new queen, they just don't. It wasn't until the 20th century that we got the inclusive fitness and kin selection theories that have been at the core of eusocial evolutionary theory for a while, basically since then, and still is one of the main topics brought up. Inclusive fitness is the combination of your own reproductive success and the reproductive success of others that share similar genes. So others in your group that you are closer to genetically if you're all being successful that raises your inclusive fitness right it's still the same pool of genes yes being passed along right you share half your genetic material with your siblings for example once and that's kin selection right which is a more specific version that it is i'm related to you you somehow directly familially related therefore you have more of my genes than everyone else helping you helps my genes along, even if I don't breed. Right. Now, uh, this is a place where it becomes very important to note that it's very easy for us to anthropomorphize evolution. Yes. To say, th- and we, we, you know, colloquially, we do this all the time. We, we say, yes, I can help you and my genes will pass on. Obviously, individual animals are not thinking that. They're not saying, you are my cousin and thus yes. it is... The the tray, you know, I've run the numbers and it turns out that one eighth of my genes and it's still perfect. But that through selection, Mm -hmm. a trait that is shared among a family group will still be passed on. A trait that encourages social behavior will still be passed on, even if only some of that family group is surviving. And a trait that encourages that behavior is, in effect, encouraging each individual to further the genetic lineage of the others, which still furthers the evolution of that trait because they're all sharing that genetic uh, heritage. Exactly. So it, it can get very complicated, and often mathematical formulas come into place to figure out 
What is the degree of relatedness? And at what point does that override or become beneficial enough to outweigh just breeding by yourself? Yeah, this goes back to what we were talking about in the news. There are mathematical rules, because at the end of the day, natural selection is a numbers game. Yes, it is. It, this, the, the likelihood of passing on traits, how you know what percentage of traits you're passing on, uh, what percentage of the population, right? you can quantify a lot of this stuff. And just like in the news we talked about, there is an optimal way mm-hmm. for a shape to grow. I remember a, a, a study a while back that was studying how high do birds fly before dropping shells to crack the shells open. Yes, I remember that one. And what they found, and they ran the number. They were like, all right, well, mathematically, this is the perfect height because you're using the least energy, but you're getting the most likely uh, likely height that the, the shell will actually crack when you drop it. And then they watched the birds, and it turns out that that is the height that they were flying. Yep. They weren't running the numbers. It's just eventually you're going to converge on the best option just through natural selection, trial and error. Same thing is going to happen here. When you've got a long enough time and big enough numbers, you're going to start converging on what is physically, mathematically, logically Mm -hmm. the best or at least close to the best option. Yeah, the most optimum. The rule, the mathematical rule in this case is Hamilton's rule. Which posits that you never throw away your shot, that you never throw away your shot, that if the benefit of a behavior to a recipient outweighs the cost of the behavior to the altruist. So if an altruistic behavior benefits the one getting the benefit more than the one doing the behavior, when taking in consideration the relatedness of the two, Mm -hmm. then the altruist's genetic advantage to perform the behavior is high enough to be beneficial, to overwrite the need to breed themselves. So if me helping you, if I can help you and my help to you is very beneficial to you and we are very closely related, it's better to help you. Yeah, it can actually be more efficient mathematically or at least equally in some cases mathematically to help my cousin's or siblings than to seek to have my own young. Right. This is that scene in the movie where they're like, you you go on without me. You're the ones who can do the thing that needs to be done to <laughs> yes. save the day. I can't help anymore. You go on. Except also they're related, so they're passing on their genetic legacy. Yes. Now, there's criticism I to believe it. kin selection because one of the key features to this is that for the group to be benefiting from kin selection, you need to all be very closely related. Right. Which means your genetic diversity is lower. Right. Which is, generally speaking, not great. Not great, because disease can have a higher effect. You have the likeliness to develop genetic defects. Yeah, you're less adaptable. Less adaptable. So there's been arguments that this close relatedness could be a hindrance and maybe a consequence of eusociality, not a cause of eusociality. That you may end up helping out your closely related kin because you're all living together in inbreeding, not because that was evolutionary benefit, more beneficial. Oh, so you sort of evolve yourself into the cul-de-sac. Yes. Of inbred low genetic diversity behavior. And so you're being kin selected, but that's not what got you here. That's what you're doing now. Uh. But there's evidence that 
at least in the shrimp and some other use social groups that they were, did evolve via kin selection, like genetic analysis of the, those species supports that they did indeed evolve through kin selection. So there's, there's debate. Some people don't find kin selection as uh, solid an argument as others, but on the note of kin selection, we have to mention haplodiploidy and kin selection, which for a long time was the core hypothesis for how eusociality evolved, at least in the groups we knew to be eusocial early on. <laughs> this was coined by William Hamilton, who proposed it for hymenopterans because of the unique way that hymenopterans sexually reproduce and the a feature of their genetics. They are haplodiploidy, which means in hymenopterans, typically males are produced through parthenogenesis, unfertilized eggs. Right. And they only have one set of chromosomes, while females are produced through fertilized eggs, two sets of chromosomes, which means that sisters, fem related offspring females, on average share 75% of their genes, while mothers always share only 50% of their genes with offspring. So siblings are more closely related, female siblings, to each other than they are to mom. Therefore, this could be a key reason to want your sibling to do well, because they share a vast majority of genetics with you, even more than your parent. So if you had offspring, you'd be less related to your offspring than you are to your sister. Right. So kin selection would be super effective in this case. Right. So again... Um, we, this is skewing the math. Mm -hmm. We are bending the math even stronger towards this selective pressure. And for a long time, it seemed to just be a perfect glove fit for how eusociality would evolve until we realized that not all eusocial groups are haplodiploidy. Oops. There are diploid groups that don't do the weird parthenogenic male thing. Termites are not haplodiploidy, and believe it or not, neither are rodents. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't work when you apply it to other groups. And even within hymenopteran haplodiploid systems, there is some issue. If the queen mates with multiple males, it screws up all the math. Right. Because now it's not just one. Now males only share 25% of their sister's genes. And in the case of equal sex ratios, where it's evenly male-female... Females become equally related to their siblings as to their own offspring, so there is now no benefit to helping my sibling versus just having my own kids. Like, I'd be just as related either way. Right. So extra males are adding more genetic diversity, and that is diluting the relatedness of your family members. Now, this has not completely killed the haplodiploidy kin selection hypothesis. But it, it lost a lot of its momentum when these things came to light, so it's not nearly as prominent as it used to be. But quickly, there are a few other hypotheses of how, of reasons and situations that could push you to evolve this uh, weird altruistic behavior. The monogamy hypothesis still uses Hamilton's rule and kin selection, but this is able to apply to both haploid and diploid organisms if the queen is strictly monogamous. If she only ever mates with one male, either multiple times or a single time, and then stays fertilized, then the system works, as the math was stated earlier, because now it's just one male and therefore only one set of 
genetically diverse offspring coming out. And in this case, in either category, they will be equally related to siblings and offspring, which may seem like it doesn't hugely support. But part of the reason this one has gotten so much attention is that it seems to be what has happened in many eusocial groups. Research not too long ago took a comparative analysis of female mating frequencies and systems in 267 species of eusocial bee, wasp, and ant, and found that, according to the research, a monogamous mating system is ancestral in the eight independent lineages that this research covered. That all of them started with a monogamous system, queen mating with a single male, and that that is ancestral for those groups. So it seems, if not to just be mathematically the most obvious, it has support for at least the groups we know of today to be a common way for things to evolve eusociality. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And then we also see this in other eusocial groups, you know, that many termites show a monogamous, have a monogamous queen. Uh, the shrimps, I believe, have a monogamous queen. And so this seems to have a lot of physical evidence supporting it, that it is indeed a common evolutionary route. So that will often, you'll often see that mentioned as a potential reason for you to stop mating is if your queen's only mating with one male, the genetics does work to make kin selection beneficial. Another way that you could become closely related and make kin selection a, a boon is inbreeding. As said, if it ends up that you inbreed and become closely related, now kin selection has higher effects. Even if it's not necessarily what got you there, if living together caused you to inbreed, now kin selection might be able to get you to be eusocial and start to have the reproductive casts. And then one that is a bit more controversial is multi-level selection or group selection. That natural selection can act on more than just the individual, but actually on group dynamics. Families, groups, uh, some multi-level even can go down to cell, but group selection, that now features are being selected that benefit the group, not just the individual. Right, you're evolving as a unit. Exactly. There's definitely lots of controversy with this one. Not everyone likes this because it, it doesn't quite fit our typical definition of natural selection. And it's not fully, it's not fully well defined as to exactly how it functions or what it means. But if you do start living as a group and if you can start being successful due to group features, not individual features, for instance, if a behavior hurts an individual but benefits the group, you could have positive selective pressures for that feature. Even though it's hurting the individual, the group's doing better. So as a gene pool, that feature is selectively beneficial. Right. That's kind of the idea. And that way, yeah, the reason you don't reproduce is because it's it turned out to be better for the group. Right. You well, it's, it's like having a feature in the body mm -hmm. that is kind of bad for some reasons, but helps you survive in the long run. Yeah. Well, it's uh, like getting a fever. Uh, it's right. like, yeah, you could die from getting a fever, but it's there to kill viruses. And so it can be bad. Typically, it's better for the overall system. Right. Yeah. Again, the numbers <laughs> come in. More often than not, this bad thing is going to help you survive. Absolutely. And those are some of the more prominent evolutionary hypotheses and theories as to the steps of how you can become eusocial, but also how you can overcome 
the typical individual level natural selection to give up your reproductive lifestyle and just benefit the horde. And this goes into, you know, this is a, a type of evolutionary thinking that we don't go into very often on the podcast. We are very accustomed to talking about this stuff that I think is a little more obvious, right? We're looking at features, we're looking at transitions through the fossil record, we're looking at behaviors we're comparing and contrasting, and we're doing a lot of sort of theoretical, but I don't want to say common sense, but relatively intuitive thinking of this is how evolution works, we can come up with fun examples and and hypotheses, but a lot of evolutionary study is mathematics. Yes, it is. And it goes into, especially once you get into genetic evolution, a lot of trying to quantify these relationships. How does the math work out to tell us what is numerically most beneficial? Like like I said, over thousands of generations and millions of individuals and bajillions of genetic uh, sequences, <laughs> all of that together where does the where do the numbers fall out to show us an optimal path or a most likely path? And that's a lot of evolutionary study. And boy, did it make taking these notes daunting. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's something that we don't talk about it a lot for, I'd say, a couple of reasons. One, it's not what we are trained in. No, I, <laughs> the, I am fully comfortable to tutor middle school math. <laughs> <laughs> like this, this is an area of evolutionary study that is not our forte. And also it's a little bit harder to explain intuitively and easily in a podcast format. Yes. You know, we're, we're trying to make this relatively intelligible for our general audience. And once you, th- there are certain topics that are so technical that it's not impossible to describe them, but it becomes much more challenging and it becomes much more abstract. And so it's a bit more of a challenge for us to discuss as scientists and for us to translate effectively as science communicators. Absolutely. But it's a huge portion of evolutionary study and it, you know, you'd start diving in deep and you start running into equations. Yep. And it, it yeah, it can change how you're viewing a thing very quickly because now you're viewing it not conceptually, but measured in a measured, calculated way. And that can be very important a lot of times to distinguish between what actually is working and isn't. Because math doesn't have opinions. Right. It has an answer. And it, it they, they, these things tend to come up when you're talking about utterly bizarre quirks of evolution like eusociality. And it is so bizarre. We... There are so many features of eusociality that we don't really have time to get into, but you get into things like superorganisms where as a colony, it's functioning like a single organism made out of many organisms. Yep. You get things with that in mind of like swarm intelligence that ants can problem solve in a way that a single ant could not. Right. You know, that they can find the optimum path between A and B via trial and error of thousands or millions and come to a solution quickly and more efficient than a single individual, even human, might be able to. Yeah. And so we things like that are often used in programming to find optimal solutions. And then you've got, there not there that one species of ant where basically the entire species functions as a colony? Yes, the super colony. So Argentine ants from South America have been introduced basically everywhere. Mm. Uh, super invasive. 
but they have a feature called unicolonality, which is that in certain species, individuals will mix freely with individuals of other nests, other colonies, right? That they don't see each other as enemies. And evidently when they were introduced out of Argentina, it, whether it was that just the group that happened to get out or whether something caused it, there was a significant drop and increase in this unicolonality, a significant drop in their aggression toward each other. And there are definitely two, but I've seen listed three g- colonies on the globe that are notable. One's in on the west coast of Japan that stretches like the west coast of Japan and is just made out of many, many colonies that all consider each other friendly and therefore will work together and be able to benefit each other, even if they go back to their nests for breeding and reproduction. The other two, there's the California colony, which stretches 900 kilometers or 560 miles along the coast of California. These are ants. Ants. (laughs) And then the European colony, stretching 6,000 kilometers, 3,700 miles along the Mediterranean coast. Ants. Which would include... Millions of queens and billions of ants. Yeah. These are the largest social things, groups ever, that we've ever documented, that we've ever been able to observe, including us. Yep. Yep. (laughs) These are the most vast and complicated social systems. So eusociality ends up manifesting in all sorts of ridiculous, fascinating ways. Which almost makes it make sense how it, why it would happen. Like, you couldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> you couldn't dominate a, you know, a coastal front unless you're eusocial. And it allows you to do some what should be impossible things for simple animals. Yeah. And I think that it's, it's, it's important to point out, we talk about how eusociality is surprisingly diverse, but there's only been, like, a dozen groups yeah. that have developed this this is a pretty rare it's not flight but it's a pretty rare yep. behavioral lifestyle feature to evolve yeah and so there is there's so much more it's and as we said we could dive into each of these groups because the ridiculous diversity of the ways ants have become have <laughs> utilized their eusociality to frankly bizarre and horrifying lifestyles it's insane same with termites same with bees and wasps the level of complexity just increases as you take a look at each group so as always if there's something we mentioned in the episode a group or a concept you want us to do more detail on send us requests for future episodes 100 percent. before we sign off we do have one last category and that is our patron question Because not only do we like to shout out the names of patrons at certain levels, but patrons of certain levels get to ask us questions that we answer on the podcast, and we have one for you all today. We sure do. This episode's patron question comes from Ash, who asks, There are plenty of captive-bred pet reptiles out there, but are there any snakes or lizards that have been truly domesticated or are heading towards domestication? Good question. It is a good question. So just a quick reminder of what domestication episode means. 27. Yeah. This is a feature of selectively breeding a plant animal for traits that are typically beneficial to us humans. Right. Uh, in one way or another, whether it's as livestock or as a work animal or as a companion that or as we crops. are crops. Yep. 
And it means that you are distinct from the wild counterpart and that the features we've selected have become the more prominent or exaggerated or sometimes only remaining features. Right. And domestication often involves a group becoming reliant on the domesticators. Yes. Now, in episode 27, we discussed the blurriness of Mm. domestication, that there's tameness and there's domesticated and there are weird things like cats, which are <laughs> the, the, the go-to example of a thing that is domesticated, but also kind of like you would expect a cat to do, defying what you want yes. uh, them to fit nicely into this, uh, ironically, this nice little box. So as far as reptiles, there are you if you Google domesticated reptile, you will find examples that are typically referring to captive bred. Yes. Uh, groups so highly like, selected breeds right the bearded dragons lots of snakes like ball pythons and things have been selectively bred for features that make them good as pets yeah and often selected for visual feature like lots of color morphs and selecting for a specific pattern yeah especially snakes yeah like, like the amount of crazy looking snakes that have been selected to be bright blue or mostly white or yellow yeah is insane and that definitely is on the path mm-hmm. to domestication but i don't i'd have never heard of a breed like professionally you know from a, from a reliable like scientific source described as domesticated mostly because i don't know that m- most of them are behaviorally significantly different from a wild counterpart yeah, there are a number of species that are tame. Yes. Uh, and certainly if we're breeding pets, we're breeding for tameness. You know, you not you don't want pets that are going to bite the owners. But, yeah, I don't know that there is any case of a domestic reptile, right, a captive bred reptile, that are notably distinct, you know, a different set of features or behaviors really from their wild counterparts. Yeah. When it, it like one of the the as far as like the tameness goes, where like ball pythons are are famous for being very amiable pets to have, you know, not not typically highly aggressive. Uh, but also, if you had a ball python that you never pick up, it might have very different behavior if it's not accustomed. Like most reptiles, at least that I'm familiar with, their tameness comes from familiarity, less than that they are they are born recognizing people as friends. Right. It's more that. A bearded dragon is a naturally very calm reptile, and if you handle it regularly, it can be even more calm and comfortable with you. But if you never pick it up, it's going to freak out every time you try to pick it up, because it's going to assume you're going to eat it, because it doesn't actually recognize humans as a natural ally, like a dog does. Like, puppies and dogs recognize humans instinctually. And that really is one of the the features of, again, the line between domesticated and not domesticated is a blurry area. For sure. But domestication often in its truer form involves reliance and dependence on us, the domesticators. Uh, Livestock, crop plants, a lot of our pets are domesticated in the sense that they rely on us, that they uh, come to us for their needs or that they require us to be there taking care of them. That they would suffer without our help, potentially. And that doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, Now, that's not to say it couldn't happen in the future. Mm -hmm. We talked in episode 27 about 
the criteria that are good for domestication, and a lot of the common criteria aren't met by reptiles. That's that's also a big <laughs> thing. Is that I don't I don't know what a domestic snake would look like. Like, like reptiles tend not to be social. They tend not to be uh, particularly good around people. They tend not to reproduce all that quickly and and easily. There are a number of barriers yeah. in the way. So yeah, go back and listen to episode 27 and think about those criteria we talked about. You don't see a lot of that in reptiles. See, now now I'm curious, what would a domestic lizard, like, what would that look like? You know, what what would it behave like, you know, and everything? Would, would we have to kind of redefine domestic reptiles in a slightly different way than we do most mammals? Maybe. Because they're just so different from a mammal behaviorally, typically. Yeah. Yeah, but good question. Good question, Ash. Thanks for asking that. As always, patrons, uh, we are open to questions, so send us your patron questions and we will put them on the list and answer them in future episodes. And for anyone else, if you aren't a patron, you can always check it out if you're interested, but you can always get in contact with us through email and Facebook and all the other social media ways. You can find us on YouTube and everywhere else, and we release episodes fortnightly. Check out the Godzilla vs. Kong Silver Screen Science. And check out the blog post uh, that we put up after each episode if you want to learn more about this topic and see the references that we used to learn about it. And when I say we used, in this case, I mean Will used <laughs> to learn about this topic. The reference I used was Will. Yes. <laughs> Which you can find on the email and That's right. Facebook and Twitter. and Commentsandpodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> Send us all of your kind, loving comments. And that's going to wrap us up. And with that, we, we say goodbye to our global collective. Yes. The Baskin Coil. Uh, bring us more uh, of your food and nurturing and care. And by which I mean, go be a patron. Yes. Sus- Listen to us. L- leave us, us. Leave us reviews on iTunes. Five stars, please. <laughs> Share us with all your friends. Grow the colony. <laughs> this doesn't, this sounds less like you social uh, insects and more like the Zerg. Yeah, no, like we're, we're getting Borgy <laughs> yes. at this point. Uh, but we're, we're a pretty good super colony and we got people all around the world. We do. So that's pretty awesome. Resistance is uh, not going to work. <laughs> Compliance is convenient and appreciated. Ah, <laughs> uh, <it's> the music. <laughs>Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.